Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. This is Taylor and Tyler with Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me year. We're so, so excited to have you guys here. We've been loving reading your comments, hearing your questions, and we continue to be amazed at the thoughtfulness that we see among so many members of the church and their love for the scriptures, their love for the prophet who's teaching us and encouraging us to be on the covenant path. And we're just having a lot of fun being here at Book of Mormon Central. We want to have a shout out to Xander Sturgill. He's the guy behind the camera. You won't see him. We probably should pull him in at some point. And Book of Mormon Central has been very supportive to bring these videos to, to all of us so that we can learn together and love the scriptures. And we're excited about being in Jacob 5 today. There's so much good content to talk yeah, it about. Is. You know, before we dive into today's block of scripture, I think that's an important thing to, to mention here. <clears throat> Whenever you have an opportunity to share things like we're doing, you need to understand that we get it, that this is just a, a supplemental resource to what heaven is going to teach you at an individual uh, level with uh, with yourself, with your family, with members in your in your church and in your community, that this is not intended to be the the source. We're we're just giving you some ideas, some things to think about. If we do our job right, then when we're done, you're going to want to open the book and study deeper with with a new perspective and gain greater insights um, that will help connect you with the Savior and with his atoning power in very real and very authentic ways. If, if we do our job right, we'll all become better people in the, in the process. So that's our, that's our goal. That's what we're trying to do. So we should set up what's happening here with Jacob 5. So the video is going to focus primarily on Jacob 5, even though the readings assignment is Jacob 5 through 7. And we saw in the past that when Isaiah is quoted in the scriptures, particularly in First and Second Nephi, first they lay out an introduction, then they do the quote, and then they explain what they've done. And we see something similar here in these Jacob chapters where Jacob has had this incredible speech he's been doing at the temple to the brethren. And so Jacob, and we'll read these verses at the end of chapter 4, sets up why he's going to quote from an ancient Israelite prophet named Zenos. And then in chapter 6, Jacob then interprets why he quoted Zenos, which happens to be the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon. And when I was a teenager, uh, this was the chapter I always loved to skip uh -huh. in my reading assignments. I'm like, oh, this is so much reading. Can you just give me one of those two-verse chapters, and I call it good, right? Read a chapter a day. And I remember when I was a missionary in the MTC, we studied this, and for the first time, it made sense. And it actually is related to what President Nelson said, and you, you reminded me of this. We wrote it up on the board. The greatest challenge, the greatest cause, and the greatest work on earth is the gathering of Israel. That's President Nelson, 2018. Yeah, there is nothing that we can be involved in that is more exciting, more thrilling, more worthwhile, according to our, our dear President Nelson and his words, that's why chapter 5, again, if we do our job right, when we finish today, 
you are going to want to go and grab your Book of Mormon and open up Jacob 5 and dive in like never before because I'm telling you this is one of the greatest chapters of Scripture anywhere. It is a handbook for how to do this. It's a handbook because in this chapter what you're going to get is this overview, this overarching look at the history of the house of Israel. So you're going to see the sweeping scope of, of this big collective group. So in a Hebrew context, that's where you get your identity, is with the group. We live in a world that is dominated by more Greek thought, which is more individualized identity, a democracy where, where every person finds identity um, at a more individual level. So the reality is, is if you look at this chapter, we're going to fire on two cylinders. We're going to be talking about the history of the house of Israel, looking back in time and, and coming forward through the different dispensations of the gospel, but we're also going to be watching the scriptures at an eye level where we're likening them to us and we're seeing not just what God has done with the, the, the children of Israel through the history of time, but how that relates to what he's doing with us today. Very similar to Isaiah where you have fulfillments in his own time and Jesus' time and our time and the millennium and other times as well, we're going to be doing that with those two levels. Jacob gets his learners to, to start thinking and questions are very powerful. Questions are quests for adventure and, and I mean that in a positive, uh, a positive light. And here's what Jacob asks his people to consider. But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jew can build. And just for clarity, we're talking about Jesus Christ. And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. That's an interesting phrase. He's, I, I love Jacob. He's just so real. He is. He's so worried about, he's, open and he's so desirous to teach them the truth, he's actually worried in his anxiousness to do it well and truthfully that he's going to mess it up. And actually, have you ever felt that way getting on video? Oh my heavens. <laughs> Every day, stepping in front of students and in this set, setting, stepping in front of a camera and not having any idea who's actually going to watch it at the end of the day, but just wanting to be appropriate, wanting to be an instrument in the hands of the Lord, it, it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's some anxiety. There's there. a little bit of anxiety. So if you yeah. ever see a stumble, just know. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. Okay, let's do this. We've got 77 verses. We're not going to cover all of them, but we want to give you some things to think about, some tools in your tool belt that when you open up this, this chapter, you can be empowered to go in and say, hey, I get this, at least to, to a certain level here. Um, if you begin in verse uh, 1 and 2, he introduces this prophet Zenos that is a, an Old Testament prophet that we're assuming he's getting off of the brass plates. We don't have him in our Old Testament today, so it's a lost book. Um, and Zenos likens the, O house of Israel, like unto a tame olive tree which a man took and nourished in his vineyard. So we begin this whole story with 
a tree. Now, he says the tree is likened unto the house of Israel. If we just look at the, the root structure of this tree and coming up the trunk, we have Abraham and Sarah, and then we have their son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca, and then their son is Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, and he marries two of his cousins, Leah and Rachel, and takes two of the, hand, the, the two handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah, and through that set of uh, marriages, we get, we get Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. That's it. That's our story. That's where it begins, the house of Israel. So now it's going to branch out um, from here, and Zenos is saying, this is a complex story, and I'm going to tell this story to you in symbolic form. So this isn't a story about Adam, Enoch, or Noah. It starts here. Now we look for clues to, to orient ourselves in this, uh, in this vineyard allegory. Notice that a man took it in verse 3, nursed it in his vineyard, and it grew and waxed old and began to decay. Well, where's the first time that this family and their descendants began to really wax old and, and decay? And the answer is, keep in mind, keep in mind with symbolism, we have to be really careful not to pigeonhole you and say it's only that one experience, period, end of story, don't think about anything else. There are layers of fulfillment. There's obviously an ultimate fulfillment of, of the prophecies and of the symbols, but don't discount other interpretations as well. For me, the biggest interpretation would be the first time that they grew old would be when they're down in Egypt and they fall into Egyptian apostasy. That lasts for about 400 years, so you're in this, in this apostasy down in Egypt for 400 years, then it's time to go and start working with that tree again. Look at verse 4. Came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth, and he saw that his olive tree began to decay, and he said, I will prune it, I will dig about it, and nourish it, that it perhaps it may shoot forth young and tender branches, and it perish not. So notice this. Notice that the first thing he's going to do is prune it. Then he's going to dig about it. Then he's going to nourish it. And by the way, while I'm at it and, and making the list of what God does with the actual trees in the vineyard, let's add verse 8 where he says that he will graft, and we'll talk about that as well. Now, many of you probably already understand all of this and you're good, but let's make sure we're all on the same page here for a moment. Uh, some of you are familiar with the story told by Elder D. Todd Christofferson. There was a great Mormon uh, message and a nice video presented where he's retelling the story of President Hubie Brown about the current bush. So on his property has this big current bush that is just going wild, but it's not producing very many currents. And so he goes down and he has to cut off all these branches. He has to prune them, cut them back to size, 
And he said, it's as if the current Bush is sitting there crying, weeping, saying, why did you do this to me? <clears throat> I was trying so hard. I was doing so well. And uh, the answer is, I'm the gardener here, and I know what I want you to be. I don't want you to be a tree. I want you to be a current bush, and I want you to produce currents. The reality is that the house of Israel, like a tree, like me, like you, if, if left totally alone, if you leave a tree alone, a fruit tree, it will simply grow branches and limbs and twigs and leaves and it will be trying to compete for the light. It becomes a bramble of, of wood and leaves. It doesn't produce fruit. It's only when a wise uh, gardener comes in and strategically cuts out certain branches of the tree that it's almost a signal to the tree. Uh, we, we can't get inside of the psyche of a tree, but it's as if the tree is saying, oh no, I'm gonna die, at which point you want to preserve the species. So the tree now puts more of its energy into growing fruit with seeds and make the fruit bigger and more healthy and less effort into growing wood. That's what's happening throughout this story. God knows what he's doing, and he's trying to help the children of Israel be fruitful, not just proliferate and, and just be humans to have a human experience. He's trying to create covenant path experiences, fruitful things where they can experience enduring joy. There's a lot more things we're going to talk about here, and as Tyler's wiping this off, let's just encourage you to look at the characters that show up in Zenus's allegory. A couple of key characters, you have the master of the vineyard. You can ask yourself, well, who might that be? And you obviously realize that this is God or Jesus. And then you have the servants. And who are those people that are in the vineyard working so hard? And these are God's chosen prophets. And actually, all of us have been invited to participate in that work. Absolutely. Um, I love this, this uh, what you've done is you've taken us from the history of the house of Israel where God has to prune some of them off. He has to take them out of Egypt. And then even out in the wilderness, what happens with the older group? They refuse to go in and take the promised land, so they have to go back out in the wilderness and wander for 40 years. What did Moses promise them? He said, none of you, none of the adults are going to get to come in here. They have to all over the next uh, 40 years get pruned to make room for the new shoots to come forth that are hopefully going to now bear fruit. But I love the idea of bringing it home to, to our day today to realize that you might have spent years growing, putting energy and effort into a whole branch of your life, a relationship, and maybe something happens, a death or a divorce or a broken covenant on somebody's part or something that causes that relationship to be pruned and severed, and it that hurts. It hurts, or a lost job, or a lost opportunity, uh, a closed door that you've put a lot of energy in, and it, it then just gets cut off in a moment. Um, so this, this story of what God's doing in the vineyard, like you said, it then makes us be fruitful in other areas of our life. It's alive and well today. Now, the second thing that we want to talk about so there's the pruning, digging. 
if if you're a tree and you're you're planted here and some farmer comes out with his shovel and it's a sharp spade what's your first reaction uh careful because what do you have under the surface here you have all of these roots but some of them are surface roots and that ground has a tendency over time if you leave if you leave ground alone in a garden or in a vineyard you leave it alone and it will become hardened it becomes hard packed huh i wonder if there's any relationship to the hearts of men and women you leave them alone and they become hardened if god doesn't soften that soil doesn't doesn't help us find humility to to churn up the soil to loosen things up a bit to make it so that when he does nourish us the nourishment can actually sink in and be absorbed by the roots and become a part of the tree and help produce fruit so there are a lot of ways to looking at, at the digging there's not just one it's a anything that would humble us and open our hearts to the teachings that, that God through his prophets and the scriptures and the Holy Ghost can give us that fits but look at this one what happens when a shovel starts churning up that soil at the surface some of those smaller surface roots they are going to get severed the tree probably isn't going to like that because no tree likes having those kinds of things cut but here's the reality the lord of the vineyard knows that just because you've been able to get nutrients here in the past the lord of the vineyard knows that there are going to be some storms there may be going to be some periods of drought or famine where there's less moisture and these roots just won't do so there might be periods in the history of the house of Israel where God does some things that temporarily might slow down the production and the growth of the tree's uh, fruit, but in the long run, it's causing that tree to send its roots a little deeper into the soil for the nourishment, for the moisture that it's going to need to be fruitful down the road when life gets a little harder. And I think we might see that as you look in our church history at the different periods of growth. When things slow down, it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes God is causing, he's cutting some, some surface roots to get us to dig a little deeper. And then there's the grafting in verse 8. Taylor, what do you want to tell them about the grafting? Well, so all my years spending uh, time in a library meant that I became an expert at horticulture and grafting. Okay, not true. In fact, let me just put a little plug in here. So Book of Mormon Central that brings these videos to life has created enormous amount of supplemental resources. You can find them on our website. You can find them on our Book of Mormon Central Scripture Plus app. And if you look particularly for our essay called Know Why Number 71, that one actually talks about ancient horticulture and this very process of growing plants. So let's just tell us briefly, what is grafting? So grafting actually can be a bit of a painful process for the tree. It's you chop off a branch, but you actually do it in a very specific way so that you can take a branch from another tree that you've chopped off, and it's almost like a transplant. So tree A loses a limb that you've taken off, 
and you replace it with a limb from tree B. And what you might be trying to do is maybe um, crossbreed some for new different fruits. You see this, you go to the supermarket today. In fact, just last week I bought what's called a tangelo. My kids are like, what is this? I'm like, it's a cross between a tangerine and an orange. And what you would do is actually graft in, in some cases, an orange, uh, an orange branch onto a tangerine uh, tree branch. So grafting is a way to maybe save a dying tree and get some of its branches onto a live tree, or to actually help a living tree to grow in new ways and to produce new types of fruits that the tree didn't even know what were possible. And so in your own life, again, you might say, yeah, I'm producing this fruit, and God's like, I actually want you to accomplish other things. And it might be a bit of a painful process, but then you'll, be, you'll grow into this fruitful tree that actually becomes a blessing to many people. So if you look at verse 8, this is where you're introduced to the concept of grafting. It says, Behold, thus or saith the Lord of the vineyard, I take away many of these young and tender branches and will graft them whithersoever I will, and it mattereth not that if it so be that the root of this tree will perish, I may preserve the fruit thereof unto myself. So he then describes that process, and then look at verse 14. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard went his way and hid the natural branches of the tame olive tree in the nethermost parts of the vineyard, some in one and some in another, according to his will and pleasure. So what's happening here is you have the house of Israel, which is our central tree in the, in the, the allegory, and he's going to take branches and he's going to spread them into the nethermost parts of the vineyard by grafting. What event does that look like? Well, there are lots of times when God's taking people from the house of Israel and taking them other places, but the biggest single event happened in 721 BC when Assyria came to town and conquered the kingdom of Israel with ten tribes and carried them captive and scattered them into the nether, nethermost parts of the vineyard. But here's the neat thing, even though they were in a state of apostasy, the tree wasn't doing well, they have the DNA, they have the capacity to produce good fruit. So God's preserving that capacity by transplanting it, putting it into different trees, and we, we watch him do his work that way. Uh, by the way, grafting for the house of Israel is this, but grafting for us there are a lot of ways that you can see this, where one person might lose a job, it gets cut off, and they're sitting there struggling when all of a sudden the Lord of the vineyard brings in a different job and grafts it in, and now they can actually become more fruitful than they ever were before. Sometimes from our perspective we're like, God, why did you do this to me? And his answer is because you can actually become even more fruitful. Just trust me. Trust that I'm the gardener here. All these different areas of life where God knows what he's doing. Our job is not to, to govern everything, it's to respond appropriately to what God is doing with us individually as a family and collectively as, as bigger groups of people as well. The garden should not be dictating to the gardener about what the gardener should be doing. And I have fallen into that trap before where I want to tell God, listen, I think I have a pretty clear plan here. If you listen to me, God, it'd work out really well. And we should talk just briefly about this because it connects to President Nelson's comment about the greatest work today is gathering Israel. And really what happened is 
Way back here, after a bunch of apostasy, God's like, I'm going to actually transplant you guys elsewhere. Now, they're lost to history. And if anybody ever comes to you saying, I'm going to sell you a book because I have found where all the you know, 10 lost tribes are, um, no, that actually is the work of the gospel, and that's what the brethren do, and we do it with them. Our job now is to help God's chosen servants to find scattered Israel that's been scattered for all these centuries and to help God's work to graft them back in. Now, there have been other ones that we're going to talk about where people have been sent out of the vineyard into other vineyards or into other parts of the vineyard, to be more specific. But this is what we're talking about, is bringing Israel back in to be grafted in to the one tree, the house of Israel, which really represents God. So, as, a, as an important addendum to this, <clears throat> two of the tribes that were scattered, that were lost, were Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are the two most frequent um, tribes mentioned in, in, in people's lineage today, but we have people from all 12 tribes. Patriarchal blessings. And patriarchal yeah. blessings. Yeah. Um, but the two dominant uh, in number, in size, and volume are Ephraim and Manasseh, and they were, they were lost. They're not as lost as they used to be. We aren't as lost as we used to be, so to speak. The, the scattering happened, but the gathering is well underway. Okay, one thing that will really help us organize this chapter and make better sense of what we're reading is to recognize that God is going to make four visits to the vineyard. And this then becomes different periods of time in the history of the house of Israel and the unfolding of God's work with, with the whole world, not just the house of Israel. So the first visit comes in chapter 5, all of these are chapter 5, verse 4 through 14. The second visit is going to be 15 through 28. The third visit is going to be 29 through 59. And the last visit, our day, is going to be 60 through 77, when God finishes his work and then the, the millennium is kind of uh, referred to at the very end, when it's, when it's all done. So, when we understand this, now this is, this is a, a huge generalization, but basically you can look at that first visit as, as things that happened in the Old Testament starting with the house of Israel in Egypt, so starting with Moses, all the way through the prophets and the working with the people through the rest of the Old Testament, leading into the ending of that visit where you get the scattering, which now leaves us for the second visit, which is going to be kind of that intertestamental period as well as the time of Jesus and the New Testament, as well as things going on in the Book of Mormon. We'll show you that as well. So let's pick that up here. Um, notice as we open up verse 15, it came to pass that a long time passed away, and the Lord of the said unto his servant, come, let us go down. So there's your second visit. We're going to go in. It's been a long time. We're going to labor in the vineyard again. We're going to do these same things again. We're going to look at the fruit. We're going to help these trees become productive. Notice that uh, verse 17 says, it came to pass that the Lord of Vineyard looked and beheld the tree in which the wild olive branches had been grafted, and it had sprung forth and begun to bear fruit, and behold, that it was good. The fruit thereof was like unto the, the natural fruit, or the tame, the tame olives. What's happening is 
there's the the central tree of the of the allegory there were wild branches that were grafted in just like there were branches scattered there were wild olives put into the natural tree and they've actually become fruitful productive so if you pause and think through your new testament uh stories there are gentiles that get brought into the house of Israel and baptized. Peter opens that work by baptizing Cornelius. Paul and his mission companions do a great deal of work among the Gentiles, bringing them in, and they actually become fruitful. They become beautifully productive members of that early Christian church, and it's quite remarkable to watch that happen. Um, now, you, you watch this fun little story unfold as you're reading through the different elements here. Watch what happened in 21. This is one, th this is one of my favorite places in this whole allegory. It's where a servant has a little experience. Verse 21, it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, how comest thou hither to plant this tree or this branch of the tree? For behold, it was the poorest spot in all the land of thy vineyard. In other words, you can picture this. Earlier on with that scattering, some people were taken one place and others another, and they're scattered all over. Well, this one servant goes and he finds one particular tree that's planted in a place that is just awful ground out there in the, in the nether parts of the vineyard, and he's like, Lord, what were you thinking? Why did you ever plant a tree here? D didn't you see the ground? Didn't you know how bad this was? And I love what the Lord of the vineyard does with this servant. He's going to teach him some, some principles here. Look at verse 22. The Lord of the vineyard said unto him, counsel me not. Back to Taylor's statement. Since when does the garden get to tell the gardener how to do his work? Don't, don't counsel me on this. I knew that it was a poor spot of ground. Wherefore, I said unto thee, I have nourished it this long time, and thou beholdest that it hath brought forth much fruit. Brothers and sisters, in our culture today, in our current society, we are so hyper-focused on results. We are so hyper-focused on, on trying to evaluate everything and, and determine uh, the roots and and stir up dirt on people, especially in in political cycles and with wars and with with uh, conflicts of all kinds, we're looking to stir up dirt. We're looking at the roots. What's wrong with this person? Let's find something on them. I love the fact that Jesus never said, "By their roots ye shall know them." If you want to know if a tree's good, you partake of the fruit. That's how you know if it's if it's good. Uh, I believe it was Elder Maxwell, wasn't it, who said you don't pull up the daisies to look at the roots to see how they're doing. It, that doesn't work. So consequently, there are a lot of a lot of dollars spent and a lot of time spent and a lot of effort spent trying to discredit God's prophets or the scriptures themselves, looking for flaws in in Joseph Smith's character or in our history or in the unfolding of the restoration, trying to find something back in the roots that would say, see, the tree can't be good because this happened. Doing that only makes us dirty. 
Now, it doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to history. We're, we're aware of it. We, we study it. But at the end of the day, if you want to know if the Book of Mormon's true, for instance, you partake of its fruit. That's, it's by their fruits that you shall know them. I love the fact that he's saying, look, I nourished it, and it's brought forth good fruit. You're looking at the ground, I'm looking up, is what this, the Lord's saying to the servant. Um, now, that's, that's big picture. Let's come down to the, to the eye level for a moment. Do you know somebody who was born into a pretty, into a pretty rough setting? into a situation where you're thinking to yourself, oh, that poor kid, he, ha he has no chance, or she's never going to be able to succeed because of that family that she was born into. This is, this is so hard. In those moments, I can hear the voice of the Lord saying, counsel me not. I knew that that was a poor spot of ground, wherefore I have nursed it this long time. Or can you picture somebody in your circle of influence who was born with something that is seen as less than ideal, whether it's a, an attraction that they have inside, whether it's an, a tendency for certain things, a, a strong struggle that they have with a certain um, uh, addictive behavior, and they just wrestle. They struggle. They don't like themselves, and they say, this is, this is a poor spot of ground. Why did I get this? Um, I can hear the voice of the Lord of the Vineyard saying, I knew that this was a poor spot of ground, and if you'll respond to me, I will continue to nourish you. You can be fruitful with all kinds of rocky soil in your own soul, in, in, a, in a collective soul uh, analogy as well, and in, at any level. The point is, God's really good at producing fruit if we let him. I want to build on this. We're talking about trees, and back in verse 18, it talks about these wild branches that have been grafted in, and it says, the wild tree hath taken hold of the moisture of the root thereof, and the root thereof have brought forth much strength. So Tyler talked about these roots. We want to grow deep, and they're growing deep to get moisture. And let me just connect this to us a bit. We have been promised by God that when we keep the commandments and we stay in the covenant path, we will have marrow to our bones. And I once looked up the word marrow in Hebrew, and it turns out the word marrow comes from the um, Hebrew word for moisture. And to have strong bones, you have to have moisture in them. And a strong tree has moisture. And what's really powerful here is that where does that moisture come from? It's God. We are symbolically trees that God is trying to nurture. Even if it happens to be poor soil, if we listen to the raindrops of revelation that come through the scriptures, the spirit, the living day prophets, God will moisture us again and again till our roots become strong, our bones become strong, and we become trees of eternal life through him. It's so beautiful, so beautiful to recognize the fact also that this is a process. This, you, you don't plant an olive tree or a branch. Olives are unique because they're one of the few plants where you can just cut off a branch and you can actually plant the branch in the ground and take care of it and it will grow root structure and it will become a fruitful tree if you take good care of it. It takes a lot of time. 
14, 15, 16, up to 17 years to eat your first olives, meaning give yourself a break. Give your family members a break. Give your ward members, your leaders a break if things aren't moving as fast as you would like. Just it's okay for this to take some time. That's, that's one of the beautiful things that I like about this analogy of an olive tree is it just – that's why it's the symbol of peace because it takes so long to get them that if you're eating olives in antiquity, you are a nation of peace because one of the first things conquering armies will do is destroy your, your productive fields and fruits and vineyards. So just give it the time. Now look at what God does with the, the servant in verse 23. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Look hither, behold, I have planted another branch of the tree also, and thou knowest that this spot of ground was poorer than the first. But behold the tree, I have nourished it this long time, and it hath brought forth much fruit. Therefore gather it, lay it up against the season, that I may preserve it unto mine own self. So what the Lord says is, oh, servant, you thought that was bad soil? Let me take you over to this other part of the vineyard and show you this other tree that you hadn't noticed before. It's planted in even worse soil than that one, and look, it's brought forth good fruit. In other words, you might think you have it bad, or you might think that that, that individual has it bad. The idea is, as God is saying, it really doesn't matter what the constraints of the soil are. It really doesn't determine fruitfulness. How the tree responds to me and my efforts determines the fruitfulness, because they're not going to get it out of the ground. And then to make that point even stronger, he says, now come with me. I want to show you a different tree. And he takes him in verse uh, 25. He saith unto the servant, look hither and behold the last. Behold, this have I planted in a good spot of ground. So we've got this nice ground, and he says, and I have nourished it this long time, and only part of the tree has brought forth tame fruit, and the other part of the tree has brought forth wild fruit. And behold, I have nourished this tree like unto the others. The point being, God now takes him to another place that has really good ground, and he says, check out that tree. Only half of it is producing good fruit, and the other half is producing wild fruit. I've often wondered if when Jacob gets to this part reading to his people from Zenos' allegory, he's winking at them saying, good ground, promised land, Lehi's tree planted, half brings good, half brings bad. We've got to be fruitful. We've, we've got to work with this, uh, with this constraint. It was this insight that I learned as a missionary at MTC. I'm like, oh, this is not just a story about planting trees. And as a kid, I didn't really care about planting trees. For me, being out in the garden meant I was not playing video games in an air-conditioned house. I was sweating outside under the hot sun. I didn't like it when my parents actually wanted to give me like life experiences outside. So I was never very interested in this until somebody pointed out this actually deals with God's history of the house of Israel, and this is a great symbol of the Nephites and the Lamanites. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, now I'm interested. Now I can read Zenus as helping me understand God's work with his people. And as we get into this a bit more, we'll see how Jacob quotes Zenus because he actually speaks quite clearly about what God's going to do to the Nephite and Lamanite nations, to this tree that he's planted in this very good ground. Yeah, on that line, look at verse 26. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servants, pluck off the branches that have not brought forth good fruit and cast them into the fire. 
So the Lord of the Vineyard, it's, it's fascinating to watch his voice through the whole allegory. He sometimes will make rash statements, and I don't think he's saying that because that's what he really wants to do. I think it's a teaching technique for the servants to say, own this, help be a part of this process, and notice what happens, verse 27, the servant said unto him, no, wait, let us prune it, dig about it, nourish it a little longer that perhaps may bring forth good fruit unto thee that thou canst lay it up against the season. If that's the case that we're talking Nephites and Lamanites, now you've got these allusions of Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni going on missions down to, to serve among the Lamanites to try to convert seven cities in, in Alma chapter 17 through 26. Later on in the book of Helaman, starting in Helaman 5, Nephi and Lehi, the sons of, of Helaman, they go on a mission and because of their efforts, the Lamanites actually become more righteous than the Nephites as a whole. So you see this, uh, this beautiful unfolding of the story using a symbol of a tree having, having uh, fulfillment later on in the Book of Mormon. Now, <clears throat> um, the Lord leaves in chapter 5, verse 28, <clears throat> and after many, after a great while passes, in verse 29, he says, come, let us go down again in the vineyard. It doesn't matter whether we're looking at the mother tree or whether we're looking at any of the other trees that were out in the other nethermost parts of the vineyard. Everywhere he goes, he finds lots and lots and lots of fruit, tons of fruit, but it's all wild. It's smaller. It's, it's not as usable. It's not tame. And everywhere he goes, that's all he can find. You'll notice it's by far the longest period of time in the allegory. This is the great apostasy. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years where the tree, the trees in the vineyard are allowed to grow and, and keep producing, but the fruit is wild. And so God, at the end of this visit, he's weeping, he's been saying, what could I have done more for my vineyard? Should we just cut it down and be done? And this is the part that, uh, for me, makes this one of the greatest chapters of all time. It's when the servants step forward and say, no, let's go labor one last time. Let's go down into the vineyard. We're going to try some things. We're going to go back. We're not going to change the program, but we're going to try this one more time and see if we can produce uh, a good fruit. And this time, we're going to try to produce the good fruit not just at the central tree, but in the whole world. Prepare the world for the second coming of the Savior. And uh, so you'll notice in verse uh, 61, wherefore, go to and call servants that we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard, that we may prepare the way, that I may bring forth fruit. Look at 62 now. Wherefore, let us go to and labor with our might this last time. For behold, the end draweth nigh, and this is the last time that I shall prune my vineyard. Now we get to come into the story. Obviously, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of our, of our dispensation, opens the way, the Lord opens the way through him with the first vision in uh, 1820, but from that little teeny seed, now we're going to spread this work and we call servants. Oh, and by the way, look at verse 70. 
came to pass the Lord of Vineyard sent his servant, and the servant went and did as the Lord had commanded him and brought other servants, and they were few. Um, there aren't there aren't very many servants who were working in the vineyard compared to the size and the scope and the scale of the work. Can you see why President Nelson's inviting us to come and engage? Because it's really easy. We've it's easy in the vineyard to sit back and relax and say, all is well in Zion, Zion prospereth, versus saying, hmm, I only get one shot at mortality. I only get one mortal life. And of all of the things I can put my effort into producing branches of life, entertainment, money, power, prestige, glories of the world, of all the things I could put my energy into, President Nelson's telling us there is nothing, nothing more exciting, nothing more thrilling, nothing more worthwhile, nothing more lasting than to help gather Israel, which means, doesn't mean that we get to go and play video games, it means we have to get out there and sweat. It's a lot of work, but how great shall be our joy in the, in the fruit that gets produced uh, by us. Now look at verse 72. This is, this is profound. It came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their mites. Hard work. And the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. And they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. If we're going to, if we're really going to gather Israel, we've got to do it his way, which means he established the covenant connection. He established the ground rules for what it means to be on the covenant path. He gave us the commandments, and you'll notice they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things, and he labored with them. This reminds me of uh, the call that the Lord gave to Enoch thousands of years ago. At the end of calling Enoch to be a prophet, his, his last three words were, walk with me and the Lord's giving us the exact same invitation today in this, in this uh, gathering perspective. Come walk with me, labor with me, go with me, and I'll teach you how to become more like me as you learn how to more effectively prune and dig and nourish and graft those around you, and as you recognize me pruning, digging, nourishing, and grafting you, the Lord's telling us, don't get angry. Don't, don't think that I'm being cruel. I'm helping you be more fruitful as you help the rest of the vineyard become more fruitful. This is such a beautiful chapter, and I love how it ends, that the whole point of the master of the vineyard planting the vineyard and laboring for so many generations. Verse 76, For behold, for a long time will I lay up the fruit of my vineyard unto mine own self. God wants to be with us. He wants us with him. He's not just interested in just being a God all alone. He wants to save us. It's the whole purpose of the Book of Mormon, to witness that we can be saved. The allegory of the olive tree from Zenos is another witness of what God is doing to save us. So we all suffer, we all struggle, but just remember the goodness of God. He is laboring in the vineyard right now with you, and he is with you. If you take a moment and reflect how have I seen God's hand in my life? And just know that his hand, and really actually his arm of mercy, 
is always there willing to embrace you to bring you into the storehouse that he can be with you forever. Now, to, to finish the vineyard segment off, um, we would invite you and encourage you to go back now and read chapter 5 slowly, carefully, looking at these different time periods, you know, from the Old Testament stuff to the New Testament stories to the apostasy to the latter days, and then jump into chapter 6 and look at how Jacob now interprets the things that he's just read from Zenos and watch carefully for how he what he emphasizes. Is he going to emphasize the justice and the, and the burning? Is that the main point that he's going to focus on, or is it going to be the mercy and the kindness and the long-suffering of God working with not just the house of Israel, but with you? Um, I'll just point out one verse, chapter 6, verse 4. And how merciful is our God unto us, for he remembereth the house of Israel, both roots and branches, and he stretches forth his hands unto them all the day long. And they are stiff-necked and a gainsaying people, but as many as will not harden their hearts shall be saved in the kingdom of God. This hardening versus the humbling that comes with the digging. He's saying he's going to keep working with you. Israel has had so many issues through the ages, and yet God still loves them and he still comes back. And quite frankly, it doesn't do us any good to point our fingers back in time and say those dummies because when we do that, we're just pointing three fingers at ourselves, saying, oh no, I've had problems. My tree has not been what it needs to be in every season, and it's okay. It's okay. God knows how to produce fruit over time if we'll just stick with him and let him keep doing his work. He's very, very infinitely good at what he does, but we have to trust him in that. So, We've loved having you with us today. Uh, we look forward to having you here, having you here with us next week. Please continue to comment below. Uh, if you have questions, let us know. And we just really appreciate who you are. We just have felt so much love and faithfulness from this audience. We just are just so enthusiastic about the Come Follow Me and what it's doing for the members of the church that I'm seeing an enthusiasm for the Word of God like I've never seen in my entire life. It's just so much fun. So thanks for letting be letting us be a part of this and. We love you guys. And just so you know, uh, we're not just totally skipping Jacob chapter 7. We're going to actually come back and cover that in, in comparison with uh, when we cover Nehor and Korahor later on. Sherem, Nehor, and Korahor, their stories are beautiful when you put them together and see that these three major antichrists in the Book of Mormon would not have agreed with each other if you put them on a debate stage. They're teaching different doctrines. They, they have totally different belief structures for the most part, and we'll talk about that later. So, have a great week, and enjoy your, your, your work in the vineyard.